0: Hi everyone! My name is Ruth, and I'm the producer of the Big Biology Podcast. I'm here with two of our interns, Dana and Kyle.
1: This is our last episode of Season 5. Woohoo! Before we start the show today, we have a special request for you to help us continue sharing the biggest and most exciting ideas in biology.
2: As an independent podcast, we rely on your support to run the show, to pay our interns and artists, and to help us reach even more listeners. We know that times
0: might be tough, and that many of you are students, and we're so grateful for all that you've done for us over the years. Any contribution, big or small, has had a huge impact on our ability to keep delivering the
2: episodes that you love.
1: And as we gear up for season six, we would like to ask for your continued support. Whether it's a one-time donation at www.bigbiology.org or a recurring monthly donation through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash big bio.
2: Your support will help us continue to share the best of biology for years to come.
1: Thank you for listening to our show. I'm Kyle Smith.
2: I'm Dana LaCruz. And I'm Ruth Demery. Here's the show. Hey, Art. Yes?
0: Good news. Hit me with it. Today, we're talking about the very long fuse that some ideas and some biological lineages need before they blow up into something important.
2: That sounds interesting, Marty, but why frame this as good news? Because there's hope. That your scientific output will eventually catch
0: on even if just posthumously
2: oh good one but your attempts at comedy are as always already posthumous.
0: <laughs> haha where do we go from here
2: how about an example
0: no problem in fact the history of human culture is replete with examples of artists and thinkers whose work and ideas went nowhere during their lifetimes but came to great prominence later sometimes much later.
2: Take Johannes Vermeer, the 17th century Dutch painter now known as the Master of Light. His sublime paintings include the now ultra-famous Girl with the Pearl Earring, which is housed in a museum in The Hague. A lesser-known Vermeer, which was the last one to come onto the market in 2004, sold for about $30 million.
0: But during his lifetime, Vermeer painted few works, just 34 to 36 are known today, and he gained only local recognition in Delft.
2: And due to this anemic output, lack of recognition, and series of economic shocks arising from invasions of the Netherlands by France and England and Germany, Vermeer and his family slid into crushing debt. He died a few years later in 1675, which his wife later attributed to stress from the debts.
0: Vermeer could easily have slid into permanent obscurity, but his works were surveyed in a published catalog by a French art critic in the mid-1860s, nearly 200 years after his death. And this exposure alerted the rest of the art world to the masterpieces. From there, his stature has grown into the worldwide acclaim that he has today.
2: So, why the long fuse?
0: Long fuses is the topic with today's guest, Andreas Wagner, in the context of his recently published book titled Sleeping Beauties, The Mystery of Dormant Innovations in Nature and Culture. Andreas is a professor at the Institute of Evolutionary Biology and Environmental Studies at the University of
2: Zurich. In the book, Andreas proposes a kind of unified vision for long fuses
0: or sleeping beauties, choosing metaphor,
2: in two vastly interesting domains, the evolutionary diversification of different taxonomic groups,
0: and the origins and spread of new scientific and technological ideas in human societies.
2: Although these two domains obviously differ profoundly in time scales and underlying dynamics, Andreas identifies two key processes that operate in both.
0: The first is the enormous and ongoing production of novelty occurring in the background.
2: In biology, this means that individual organisms, their populations and species, and the larger taxonomic groups that contain them are producing novel traits all the time.
0: One process is the promiscuity of individual enzymes in relation to possible food substrates and external chemical threats.
2: It turns out, for example, that even bacteria from the microbiomes of uncontacted hunter-gatherer groups contain at least some latent capacity to resist modern antibiotics, even though they have no evolutionary history with them.
0: In human culture, This means that particular ideas and technologies often arise many times in many places, but sometimes they just take hold locally.
2: In other words, there's enormous background creativity, much of which disappears before the ideas become widespread. We, of course, don't remember the folks who came up with these ideas.
0: The second process is radical change in the context that suddenly makes the novelty successful.
2: In biology, this means that particular lineages may evolve novel traits that lay dormant for long periods of time before suddenly becoming useful.
0: Here we talk about grasses, which seem to have evolved key traits tens of millions of years before the lineages had their viral moment and underwent massive expansion and diversification.
2: Likewise in human culture, good ideas in the arts and politics and science often arise long before they come to be adopted widely.
0: Think of Mendel's inferences about genetics from his work on peas. These were ignored for at least 30 years after its initial publication.
2: And often those ideas arise in multiple places from multiple individuals or groups.
0: Think of the origins of the wheel or of agriculture, each of which occurred at least 10 different times in 10 different places in the world before really catching on.
2: What leads ultimately to the success of these ideas? It's clearly something about the cultural context in which they're occurring. Something changes so that finally other people and society at large are ready to accept and leverage them.
0: During the end of today's chat, we talk about how a key sleeping beauty in our biology may be driving sleeping beauties in our culture.
2: That conversation centers on metaphors, the unsung linchpin of so many intellectual and cultural discoveries.
0: We talk with Andreas about how our brains have evolved to be metaphor machines. How modern cultural evolution has shifted the context so that this ancient human ability takes on profoundly new importance.
2: It's our own long fuse, our sleeping beauty, that now drives such rapid cultural and technological diversification. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods.
0: And this is Big Biology.
2: Thanks so much for joining us on Big Biology to talk about your new book, uh, Sleeping Beauties, which was published this year by One World Press. We just read the book over the last couple of weeks. I uh, thought it was a beautiful exposition of how often sort of very important discoveries, both in, in biology and in culture and, and how you know human, human culture has developed over the past thousands to hundreds of thousands of years, how those discoveries lay dormant for long periods of time before suddenly bursting forth. Um, and we want to just sort of Step through the book and talk about some of the key examples, and really dig into some of the mechanisms that underlie these long fuses that happen both in in evolution and in culture. And we thought, uh, you know, a good place to start would be with some of the macroevolutionary examples that you describe early on in the book, and and s- especially this spectacular radiation of the world's grasses. Um, so grasses dominate temperate grasslands uh, all over the world, and um, what, what's amazing is how Recently in evolutionary time, that diversification has happened, but how old grasses are. So can you just sort of lay out the, the grass issue for us?
1: Yeah, so, you know, most people wouldn't think of grasses as spectacularly successful organisms, but, you know, they really are, and uh, by at least two standards. First of all, as you just said, they, uh, you know, cover uh, large areas on most continents, um, you know, millions and millions of square miles, so they're extremely widespread. And they also ha- are extremely diverse in terms of the numbers of species uh, they have radiated into, about 10,000 or so. Um, grasses are also phylogenetically, that is evolutionarily, very old. Uh, they originated in, in the, during the age of the dinosaurs. And we know this we, because we can actually find signatures uh, of grass pollen, for example, in fossilized dinosaur dung. Uh, so we know that grasses are at least 65 million years old. But it turns out when they first originated during the age of the dinosaurs, um, they were actually not very successful. That is, they basically barely eked out a living at the margins of the biosphere. They were not widespread geographically and uh, they did not uh, radiate into a lot of species, at least initially. And in fact, it turns out they had to wait for some 40 million years before those two developments happened, this radiation and uh, the spreading of the grasses. So they are, I think, a paradigmatic example, although perhaps not very well known outside circles of specialists, of what uh, paleontologists have called macroevolutionary lags. um, That is a long delay between the origin of a group of species or a taxon um, to their eventual success, either in terms of becoming widespread geographically or into radi- radiating into many species.
2: Yeah. And so for grasses, what, what was the, the context, the, the evolutionary change that allowed the sudden radiation to happen?
1: It was actually no evolutionary change. And I think that's the key point. It was nothing that, as far as we know, that happened inside the grasses themselves. It was actually something that um, had to do with the change in the environment. Uh, that is, at the time the grasses originated, the Earth, the planet Earth was much wetter than it is today. But um, about 40 million years uh, later, it dried up. And uh, when it dried up, um, there were several innovations that the grasses had since their origins, or uh, shortly thereafter, that helped them uh, survive a drier planet.
0: So let's, let's talk a little bit more about these macroevolutionary lags. The first few chapters of your book have other examples besides the grasses in this sort of long period of time from the original origin of the group to the point that diversification happens. Is there any consistency? What what do we know about the patterns in macroevolutionary lags? Do they tend to be about the same duration for most lineages? I imagine the answer is no. But the duration of the lags in general, is there anything about about those lineages that sort of retrospectively we can see as pattern? Big things evolve slower, you know, small things, sizes of genomes, anything like that? It's a great
1: question. I don't think we know the answer at all. I think that would be a very interesting research program. And, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, this is not really a hot research area in paleontology or in evolutionary biology in general. So there is not really the hundreds of papers that you would actually need to, um, to characterize some sort of pattern. So, I, you know, for all we know, there are no rules, there are no patterns, but that may just be because nobody has looked for them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, the conclusion I mean, I think the reason that you entitled the book Sleeping Beauty is that there, there's this idea that meaningful variation in a macroevolutionary sense in terms of diversification of lineages, and then in a minute we're going to talk about some sort of the experimental bacterial evolution work that you've done, which becomes more microevolutionary and the origins of genes and those kinds of things. But the basic idea is that these uh, biological phenomena. You don't see flourishing or diversification until context changes, until suddenly conditions are right, like you said, for the grasses, uh, the drying out of the, the habitat. So is, is is another way of saying that, that there's massive contingency in the in the biological past? And another way of asking that question, should we hope for a massive radiation of coelacanths
1: <laughs> some 30 million <laughs> years from now? Um about the coelacanths, I don't know. You know. Uh, One can only hope. Exactly. I would have just, you know, made a stand here and said, yes, of course, you know, this will happen. 35
0: right? million years, two weeks.
1: And yeah. Yeah. As we all know, a lot, you know a lot of evolutionary biologists talk about predicting evolution, but usually predicting evolution is something you do only in hindsight.
2: Right? <laughs> Ironically <laughs> enough, <laughs> yeah.
1: um, and I'm sorry, now I forgot the first question.
0: Well, so, is is the Sleeping Beauty's idea another way of saying that? Is it, evolution is contingent? Life on Earth, there's a lot of contingency in, what, in what's around now.
1: It's a particular kind of contingency. Yes, I would I, I would say so. Um, it's a process where the contingency comes not from something inside the organism, because those kinds of contingencies people have studied too, but it's a contingency comes from outside the organism, right? External versus internal, right? So, internal contingencies are if, you know, an organism has to wait for the right kind of mutation to happen uh, that brings forth a new feature that allows it to be successful. But these are different kinds of contingencies. They are they are contingencies that happen in the environment. They are not within the control, so to speak, of the genome. So.
0: I mean, just just to drive this home, because I I had a different read, and maybe this is where I'm getting intermixed earlier chapters with the later chapters of the book. It's not so much that there is a latent potential as a trait of that evolutionary lineage. Well, I guess I'm having... Let me say that differently. I'm having a hard time understanding how it's not a latent potential of the organism because there's something that's getting released when the environment changes. But you, you want to represent that as it's not... It's not something that's internal to that lineage. It's an externality.
1: All I'm saying is that, you know, the trigger of becoming successful is external. But there's already a latent potential for that success inside the organism that, um, for example, in the case of grasses, right, um, regards a number of adaptations that made grasses rather drought resistant, including, you know, um, or innovations like C4 photosynthesis that you know are sort of water-saving innovations, if you will, right? So a special kind of photosynthesis um, that helps grasses survive in the dry world. And yeah, those were in place for a long time, but they perhaps didn't matter a whole lot in a world that was really quite wet, right? They really started to make a difference when the world you know, became dry. Just as we'll probably talk about later, um, we know of a lot of bacteria that are antibiotic-resistant without ever having encountered antibiotics, right? So that's a latent potential that starts to matter once those bacteria you know, uh, prol- proliferate in a patient that gets into a clinic where doctors apply antibiotics.
2: So, so here's another thought experiment. If we could go take a time machine back 30 million years and look at grass lineages pre-explosion, is there any way to predict that they had these capacities? for rapid evolution and diversification in the face of, of climate change. Uh, is there is there some some characteristic we could define about them that would allow us to do that?
1: Well again, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And I think you perhaps guessed from my you know previous remark that I'm rather skeptical about our ability to predict much about evolution, at least the interesting stuff, you know, the, the novelties, the, the new features that, that come about in evolution. And so here too I think um, A we know very little Uh, especially about this whole you know complex with the grasses and all the traits and when exactly some of those uh, originated Uh, and I, I suspect that even if we knew we could only predict these kinds of things in hindsight.
2: Let's move on to talking about uh, bacterial metabolism and then origins of of new genes. Um, So in in the book, you describe uh, a sort of astonishing set of things about the rapidity with which bacterial metabolisms can evolve. And um, the sort of story that I gathered from that chapter was that bacterial metabolisms, in all their complexity, have a lot of latent capacities to use new uh, molecules as potential foods. So so maybe let's just tell, tell us about bacterial metabolism and, and where do those latent capacities come from?
1: The first thing to know about metabolism is that it's a very complicated chemical reaction network. Each of these reactions, or most of these reactions, are catalyzed by enzymes, which are encoded by genes. And so if you look, for example, at a supposedly simple bacterium like E. coli, its metabolism catalyzes more than a thousand uh, of these reactions. And um, what's also remarkable is that for about the last 20 years, we've had uh, very good computational tools to predict what a bacterial metabolism can do. If you give it a set of nutrients in a particular kind of environment, particular set of growth conditions, um, specifically we can predict whether the metabolism can sustain life in that environment. And what that typically means is that uh, the cell like a bacterial cell can synthesize all the building blocks of DNA, of RNA, of protein, and the number of lipids. Um, That's uh, something that was not possible before. And these predictions are actually in pretty good uh, agreement with experimental uh, results, uh, at least for well-studied organisms. And for these predictions, we use so-called metabolic models or genome-scale metabolic models. So these are Um, metabolic models that uh, represent um, most or all of the reactions that uh, take place in such a metabolism computationally and that allow us to say what a metabolism can produce given a set of nutrients that as input into the metabolism and um, what you can do then uh, computationally is a lot of really interesting things so for example um, you could ask whether a particular metabolism might be able to sustain life on very exotic nutrients that the cell might not normally encounter in its environment, right? Um, What you can also do is you can simulate evolution of a metabolism, right? You can say, okay, I start with a metabolism of E. coli and I basically um, alter this metabolism by either adding reactions to it that we know occur in the biosphere, perhaps encoded by some other organism or delete reactions from it, such as might happen through what we call a loss of function mutation in the genome of a bacterium. And to do this, you know, thousands and thousands of times uh, until you have changed a starting metabolism to something unrecognizable that may actually never have existed in the biosphere. And so when you do that, you can say, okay, can I produce a metabolism that um, can survive only, let's say, on a single carbon source? So we asked, we required the the metabolism to survive only on glucose. It's provided as the sole source of carbon and energy. You can do that. And then you can ask, um, well, does this metabolism really only have that cap- capacity, right? And what you find out more often than not is even though you selected a metabolism to be viable only on glucose, that is to produce all the building blocks out of the carbon um, in, in, in glucose molecules, um, it's usually also viable on several multiples, up to dozens of other carbon sources that your simulated selection never actually required it to be viable, only, right? And you can repeat that thousands of ways, you know, with different nutrients, uh, metabolisms with, of different complexity, you know, many reactions, fewer reactions, and you find typically uh, always the same thing, that metabolisms that may have been selected for survival in specific environments are often also viable in other environments.
0: Yeah, how when you get lineages like that, can you dissect those lineages and figure out the biochemical pathways by which they come to metabolize those? Is that is that understandable in the same way that yeah, glucose yeah. metabolism? Okay, so you can decompose it in the same way that you could build up from the yeah
1: exactly. That's kind of trivial almost, you know. And and what basically happens, you know, a lot of the more exotic reactions are converted into a very, very small number of chemical reactions into more conventional small molecules that are then fed into sort of the main highways of metabolism, if you will. And I think this brings me now to, you know, a a metaphor that's kind of makes this metabolic reaction networks a bit easier to understand, They're a little bit like highway systems, right? Like road networks, you know, large and Old historically grown city like Paris or London, right? Um, the jumble of roads. There's some you know major arteries through which a lot of metabolic traffic uh, goes. So those would be the uh, you know the highways. You know things like glycolysis or the citric acid cycle, from which lots of smaller roads branch off. Those would be biosynthetic pathways that are necessary for building amino acids or nucleotide precursors, DNA precursors, and so forth. So one thing. That becomes kind of obvious when you think about uh, metabolism as a road network, as a a highway network, is that often when you build a road in the real world, your goal may be to actually connect, let's say, you know, a a settlement, a community to a major city, right? And so that's, you know, that community may have funded the road, you know, because they want to be connected to the city. But when that road is built, there may be other settlements, you know, other houses or whatever that happen to be close to that road. And you can connect them by that road to the, to, the, to the major city as well. So by analogy, in metabolism, we see something similar. So there is lots of these metabolic pathways that are, uh, represent chemical conversions of molecules into other molecules. And some of these intermediate steps then can act as nutrients, so to speak, sort of as inroads into the major metabolic highways of an organism.
2: Yeah, without having to evolve them specifically as target target molecules. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, so Andreas, you know, can I? I have some follow-ups, but you go first.
0: Yeah. Okay. I, I just want to try to pull this back to the Sleeping Beauties title of the book, and and maybe also push you to to connect it to the macroevolutionary conversation we we're having about C four grasses. So, do you think that? part of the reason that these networks evolved to focus on glucose or able to use other substrates is their size and or complexity. Like the concept of epistasis for geneticists is is often used in, in this space. And if that is so, when we were talking about C4 grasses and Art asked about the time machine, can we go point at something that gave them this potential? It would seem to be something like that might have been a trait that could have predicted you know, diversification later on. So h- how do you think about those things? I mean, especially on the bacterial level, the, as the sort of where does the the variation reside that allows them to metabolize things that you didn't evolve them on?
1: Yeah, so complexity is kind of important here. So I, I mentioned in passing, you can, you know, do this, um you know, computational analysis in many different ways with different sizes of metabolisms, and it makes no difference, but it turns out it does, as I glossed over that. So thanks for catching me on that. Um, it turns out that, you know, for just survival on a, um, you know, very simple chemical environment, a metabolism like that of E. coli is way too complex. You can actually, uh, create metabolisms in silico that are much simpler, uh, that contain not more than a thousand reactions, but maybe only three or 400 reactions that will also produce, um, everything the cell needs in a simple environment. Right. And when you, then ask whether such a simple metabolism is also able to survive in multiple other environments. That is typically not the case. So you basically lose with the complexity of a metabolism this gratuitous ability of, of survival, survival in other environments. So part of this ability of E. coli comes from um, the fact that it is more complex than is necessary to survive in a simple environment. And, and the reason for that is likely that it has to ha- it had to survive um, in its evolutionary history in many many different environments, and those different environments um, gave it a metabolism that is more complex than necessary, and this metabolism buys it the, the ability to survive in even more environments.
2: So that's that's great. That touches on a conversation that we had a couple of months ago with John Glass about um, the minimal cells that that he's been building at the Venter Institute and. In I wonder, have you modeled the metabolisms of these, these minimal cells that they've been working on? And, and, and you know, like my sense is that those minimal cells are like, they've stripped away all the peripheral roads, right? And they've just got the, the main arteries left, and, and they've gotten rid of everything else. Um, yeah,
1: so, you know, I've not looked at the metabolism of their specific constructs, but we have actually, you know, people in my lab have tried to build and study minimal metabolisms that are no- you cannot make them any smaller. You cannot move, remove any chemical reactions anymore, or the whole thing will collapse. You know, the, the, the metabolism will not produce what is needed uh, for survival anymore. And um, you know, one of the interesting things you find is that, well, you might think that such minimal metabolisms are unique in the sense that you know, you'd converge on something, some unique minimal metabolism that is the one and only the smallest possible one and it turns out that is actually not necessarily the case. So if it's, if such a metabolism exists, it's extremely hard to find. It turns out there is a myriad minimal metabolisms, each different from one another, from each other, um, that have this property of minimality. And they're in the sense that you cannot remove anything from them without destroying uh, the ability of uh, or to sustain life. So um, I, I think that's one of the most... Uh, you know, fundamental observations we made that not even in this world of minimal metabolism, things are unique.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's super cool. The we we asked Glass that question, but in the in a sort of very different context of asking, you know, he, so he they started with mycoplasma and we're getting rid of genes out of mycoplasma. And and our question was, well, if you started with something else, would you have arrived at the same minimal metabolism? And the the sort of related thing here is we asked him multiple times about uh, plasticity and sort of ability to thrive in, in diverse sets of environments you know these these minimal cells that they have require a very specific set of environmental circumstances in order to thrive and and our question was well are you throwing away all of this capacity to be able to deal with interesting and complex variation in, in the environment and i you know i think i think the answer was yes and, and that's part of what you give up when you go minimal right
1: yeah I strongly believe that you know minimal organisms will be in a sense very brittle that is, you know, if you change the environment, uh, they can't handle a lot of that change. We may have designed them either in a lab or in a computer um, to be um, to just survive in a particular circumstance, in a particular environment. And uh, if you change anything about that, they'll just fall apart. And so from a practical point of view, you know, they may not be very useful, right, such organisms. Um, although as an intellectual exercise, I think it's very important to study them.
0: Hmm. So back back to the E. coli, um, how much bigger are their networks than these minimal networks? And is that difference in size like understandable in terms of the other challenges they face? And to say how many environments they appear in, I mean, that's effectively everything. So that's not a great question. But there's a
1: very concrete example of that. Um, and it's not actually mentioned in the book. There is a species of bacteria called the bucneras that are fairly closely related to E. coli and it turns out they are what are called endosymbionts that is they live inside other organisms more specifically they live inside cells uh, of aphids and um, their metabolism has been very well studied and it contains of the order of 280 to 300 uh, chemical reactions that is catalyzes uh, about 300 chemical reactions they also have very small genomes so basically, this is a reduction in size of a factor 4 to 5 in terms of metabolism. It's actually relatively easy to understand uh, the structure of their metabolism once you look at what they needed to, what they need to do. And in fact, their host cell provides pretty much most of the nutrients they need. right? So all of the chemical reactions that E. coli needs to synthesize, for example, certain amino acids that are provided by the aphid host cell, well, the bucneros don't need them anymore. We also know that these symbioses are often fairly old, you know, 50 million years or more. So we can think of the Buchnera as having persisted in a nearly constant intracellular environment for 50 million years. And as a result, they could shed almost everything in their metabolism.
2: Before we move on from bacterial metabolism, I want to uh, link this back to the idea of sleeping beauties. And let me just articulate what I gathered to be part of the sleeping beauty within E. coli. And that is that many of the enzymes that are running these metabolic networks are unexpectedly promiscuous in the sense that they, they don't just do one reaction, right? They, they have this capacity to also do other things, maybe not as well or as rapidly, but that those other things represent a kind of capacitance for rapid evolutionary change. So, so is, that, is that the sleeping beauty that's inside these complex metabolic networks?
1: So let me unpack this because you're bringing in a new idea here. I think that you know is worth talking about. So even if there were no promiscuous enzymes, that is, any enzyme, every enzyme can only catalyze a single reaction. This property of metabolism that I just described uh, would still exist. And where Sleeping Beauties comes in here is that a metabolism that may have adapted to a particular environment through the evolutionary history of the organism that it resides in may actually be able to survive in environments that it has the organism has never encountered before merely because of this network like properties of the metabolic highway network so sleeping means here this is a dormant a latent potential to survive in a new environment that an organism may have never encountered before and that may become important if that environment arises for whatever reason just like you know the earth dried up 40 million years after the grasses originated now promiscuity is another phenomenon that exists on top of that, and people have studied that too, that is how promiscuity of enzymes might enable um, organisms to survive in new environments, and there have been some estimates, for example, for E. coli based on what we know of how promiscuous E. coli enzymes are and about uh, what we know about the structure of its metabolic network in which these enzymes are embedded, and they've estimated that uh, e. coli might be able to survive in about 20, you know, 20 additional environments that um, its metabolism would not be able to survive in if enzymes were not promiscuous. And this promiscuity also plays an important role in another phenomenon, namely antibiotic resistance.
2: So, so do you think that this promiscuity, is that just an inherent trait of enzymes in metabolic networks? Or is that kind of promiscuity evolved? That's, a, you know, a, s- a simple question
1: with, uh, and those are the, the, the worst ones because they have, you know, <laughs> the most complicated answers. Or the best. <laughs> I got <know>, a yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, So that's a matter of debate. Okay. So there is one school of thought that says ancestral enzymes, old enzymes, you know, that, that existed perhaps at the time of the most recent common ancestor of all extant life were probably highly promiscuous. Part of the reason uh, is that the kind of machinery that was necessary to produce this enzyme, for example, transcription and translation, was a whole lot more error-prone. Enzymes themselves were not, you know, enzymes expressed in a cell uh, may themselves have not been just single polypeptides, but entire pools of polypeptides. And if you have that kind of problem, it's much harder to select for enzymes that catalyze reactions with high precisions. So the, the idea, according to this school of thought, is Uh, ancestral enzymes were highly promiscuous and then when it was necessary for enzymes to really become highly efficient, which is often a contradiction to promiscuity, um, evolution honed them to make them highly efficient. So from this point of view promiscuity was ancestral. Enzymes were generalists; that's how uh, people express this too, and have become specialists. But we don't actually really know and there is others who say, well no, perhaps promiscuity is an inevitable property of all enzymes. It just has to do with molecular motions in the three-dimensional fold of an enzyme uh, and how that catalyzes chemical reactions and that will inevitably lead to some promiscuity that you just cannot get rid of,
2: right? It seems like one last possibility is that there's actually sometimes positive selection for promiscuity if it confers some sort of, you know, robustness or resilience on these these networks, right? or is that not possible?
1: Yes, so I think that's definitely a possibility, and you know a, a candidate example um, may be plant secondary metabolism. Right? So there we know there's lots of promiscuous enzymes, and these secondary metabolites that plants produce are essentially often defense chemicals, right? And um, plants may benefit from producing a wide array of chemically similar uh, defense chemicals, and that's exactly what a promiscuous enzyme achieves, right? Um, so yes, there is definitely um, situations where chemical diversity is important in evolution, and in those kinds of cases, promiscuity of enzymes can be highly advantageous.
0: Yeah. So one more quick question. I we I was going to move on to the origin of genes, but I can't, I can't resist this because this is such a, a cool area and something that I think about a lot. You know, you use metaphors. The thing that we want to make sure we save time to talk about is, is metaphors and the use of metaphors by humans. It's fascinating, but To use a metaphor for what you just said with plant secondary defenses, in principle, I think you can imagine that different plants have different toolkits, you know, screwdrivers and hammers and saws and these kinds of things to solve the different problems that they have. But how do we think about the evolution of toolkits when many of those tools will never even get used? How does natural selection operate on a diverse toolkit if you only ever need the screwdriver? This is a, I mean, this is a really bizarre thing that we could argue that, you know, these sort of promiscuous factors would be useful, but what if you never get the chance to use them?
1: So I think it's actually a really interesting question that I think can be embedded in a much broader question, and that is, when we see a trait of an organism, how do we actually know it's an adaptation? So we have this reflexive tendency to, you know, when we see a trait, say, oh, this is an adaptation, it's got to exist for some reason, right? And I think a lot of these latent traits that, you know, we see both in, you know, computational analysis, we predict through computational analysis, or lab experiments, they're not like that. They're traits that exist as byproducts of something else. They may have never served a purpose. Um, they, may, they may never will. And they're still there. Right. So I think this whole area raises a huge challenge that is completely unmet, I think, to distinguish uh, adaptive traits from other kinds of traits um no matter how you'd like to call them and in the case of plant chemical diversity if we the the way i'd like to think about it is that you know maybe a plant needs in its lifetime you know 50 different chemicals to to defend itself effectively against herbivores and the ability to produce those chemicals uh, may be subject to natural selection over multiple generations but as a byproduct of getting these 50 chemicals you get you know 300 others right and And I think, you know, most chemical ecologists would probably agree that, you know, out of the hundreds of thousands of uh, plant secondary metabolites that plants are known to produce, we're often not sure which of the ones are, are really the important ones. We know certain classes of metabolites and we may know for specific plants and metabolites that are important, but plants produce many more that we don't know anything about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting because in the way that I would think about it, a lot of my lab is is sort of immunology. If you push back the the sort of definition of a trait to a slightly different place, it's the propensity to be able to generate that variation, whether it's that set of 50 that solves the known problems or that entire constellation of 300 that, you know, occasionally you might need to bring out. I mean, uh, your your point about where is the adaptation? Is it the one that does the work or the the machine that generates that, that variation? So let's, um, let's switch to talk about the origins of another innovation, and that's new genes. Um, I think historically, um, you know, the idea is the sort of traditional view is traced back to Francois Jacob about uh, duplication. A lot of new genes come about by duplication of existing genes, and that still definitely happens, massive evidence of that, consequential um, evidence. But in the book, you talk about an unexpected discovery in the last six to eight years about lineages coming up with completely new genes from scratch. So tell us about these de novo origins of genes.
1: Yeah, so let's, let's begin with François Jacob again, who said basically um, in one of his essays about evolution that de novo creation or generation uh, of new genes uh, in biological evolution would not occur. Um, he basically emphasized that new genes would come about through duplication. And um, he had a point, you know, if you think about it, A gene is not really a simple object, right? So, and we're talking about protein coding genes. So, what you need is you need a start codon, you need a stop codon, um, you need uh, a, uh, a sequence of nucleotide triplets in between, right? Uh, so that needs to be in place or you can't actually produce a protein. So you need an open reading frame. Then you need transcriptional start signals You know that allow the gene to be transcribed and some stop signal. Then you need, you know, for prokaryotes, you need a ribosome binding site to have that thing translated. Um, so it's a complicated object and it's kind of not so easy to see how it could uh, originate de novo. But it turns out that you know once a large enough number of genomes, or mostly eukaryotic genomes, were available to compare the DNA against one another, um, it became clear that this de novo origination of genes um, does actually occur. It occurs, seems to occur quite frequently. Um, and basically, what people realized is that you know, since our genomes are so large, even by chance alone, for example, you'll find lots of open reading frames. Um, that is, start codons stop codons with uh, integer um, multiples of uh, nucleotide triplets in between. Uh, so for example, in the human genome alone, there is about 13 million of those, uh, and they are not necessarily very short, you know, or can actually be quite long. And then it turns out, you know, something that uh, Jacob, although he, you know, discovered the lac operon, and as one of the fathers of gene regulation, did not know at the time, is that especially in eukaryotes, transcriptional regulation signals are often very short DNA words. So they arise by chance alone, often in random stretches of of a genome. And um, these observations, you know, help rationalize this experimental finding that new genes seem to pop up all the time in eukaryotic genomes. And most of these genes, you know, eventually just disappear again or not actually never have any useful functions. Perhaps a very small minority of them um, that become useful and sometimes essential to an organism.
2: So it's like we have this sort of background churn of origin and disappearance of, of de novo genes all the time. And at some point, some of those may become useful. Do we have examples of those sorts of de novo genes, either in humans or other eukaryotes? There is,
1: you know, well, you know, for example, in humans, it's been estimated uh, by genome comparison, you know, supplemented by some experimental work that about 800 new genes have originated since, the, since our split from chimps. And by some estimates, only about six of those have come under natural selection, which is a you know, hallmark of being, you know, having become useful. That is, their um, nucleotide sequence does not evolve neutrally anymore. Some mutations must be eliminated in those genes. That's comparative data. Um, there's also experimental data from Drosophila, I believe, um, and other organisms that uh, basically knocks down or knocks out some of these uh, de novo genes and shows that the fruit flies are not happy when that happens. But there is a selection for maintaining those genes. The problem is that, you know, a lot of these genes are not very well studied. So, you know, I can't really tell you, ah, there is this one gene that has a very obvious function that well, it's kind of obvious that it, you know, should be essential and indeed it is essential and it's a de novo gene. And this may be because simply we haven't had enough time to study their function. And in fact, when I wrote the book, I desperately looked through the literature to find good examples, you know, that are easy to explain and there is not really a whole lot out there uh, of genes with, you know, simple functions that we know a lot about and says, okay, these are de novo genes.
2: I don't know if six new genes seems like a lot or not. I, I mean, I, you know, it's a small number, but at the same time, it seems like a lot since our split with chimpanzees really to have that, that many de novo genes in us. Yeah.
1: yeah. I actually, I mean, if we, if we want to come back to the Sleeping Beauty angle, you know, I think the more, almost the more striking uh, piece of information is that six out of 800 yeah right that means the other ones you know there are solutions in search of a problem that never occurred right <laughs> at least since we split from chimps
0: yeah right? or hasn't occurred yet right just give it enough time yeah exactly
1: exactly you know if they hang out for long enough you know maybe for another 20 million years maybe one or the other will become useful right what's nice about you know the molecular world and this is why you know my lab is studying the molecular world is that We can get mechanistic insights and quantify the importance of, you know, sleeping beauties, you know, a a, de novo gene that is not useful for anything is a sleeping beauty, if you will. It could become useful at some point in the right kind of environment. And what the, the, this data on gene origination tell us that the number of these dormant, uh, innovation solutions in search of a problem may vastly outnumber those that eventually become useful.
2: Uh, I wanna ask a, a sort of levels of biology question here. So we've we talked about bacterial metabolic networks, so we could say that's sort of the enzyme level. We've just talked about origins of, of new genes. Mar- Marty and I think a lot about physiological systems that are occurring at sort of higher levels of organization, so you know physiological regulatory networks and homeostasis and the organs and tissues that are involved in, in that. You know, have you thought about applying this Sleeping beauties idea to those higher levels of regulation and higher levels of organization? And and are there sort of obvious statements to make about about those?
1: Um, well, you know, in our in my lab's research, we haven't done much of that uh, because I guess I have a simple mind that likes simple things, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, A lot of these physiological systems, they're just daunting, right? Um, yes, yes, they are. <laughs> there's just so many interactions and, you know, so much going on, you know, you just want to tear your hair yeah. out.
2: But it also feels like they might have just a vast capacity for promiscuity in terms of being able to deal with new new situations and new insults and opportunities.
1: You know, so if I had to venture a guess, then I'd say you're 100% right. You know, I think there is... You know, if we see that much, you know, hidden potential on the level of an individual enzyme, right, that we thought, you know, catalyzes one chemical reaction but catalyzes five or ten, now you actually exponentiate that with, you know, all the enzymes that are out there and all the proteins that interact in some, you know, complex way with other proteins or smaller molecules and it just boggles the mind, you know, what could be out there that we have not, you know, even touched or scratched the surface of.
2: I I agree at some intuitive level. I mean, if you exponentiate this stuff up to physiological systems, it's got to be massive. But it would be nice to, you know, figure out a a sort of entry point into understanding that complexity.
1: Yes, I think that'd be great. I think, you know, there's multiple research programs in that area. Yeah. Latent research programs.
2: (laughs) The the meta metaphor. Yeah, I like it.
0: (laughs) Well, I think we wanted to sort of majorly switch gears here and move into... um, Human uh, sort of uh, psychological dimension in a sense, and and talk about your chapter eight on analogies and metaphors. Um, I just think it was it was it was phenomenal. I mean, I've skipped over a bunch of really cool sections. We've talked a lot about uh, genetics and um, molecular biology, but um, tell tell us the story about how you understand metaphors as either sleeping beauties or the products of sleeping beauties. Maybe is the is the better way. To think about them.
1: Yeah, so I hope I can articulate this at all, because it was, although it's one of the shortest chapters in the book, it was the most difficult to write, and I almost deleted the whole thing, uh, because I said, you know, I can't just explain this, um, ex- explain this uh, clearly enough, right? But well, let's just begin with analogy, which is sort of an elaborate form of metaphor, if you will, that's important in science. We often think of as you know analogies as didactic devices. You know that you know we explain to a student um, how I don't know uh, homeostasis works in blood sugar by comparing it to uh, the water level and how it's controlled in a toilet bowl, that sort of thing, right? <laughs> a toilet tank, right? Um, but history of science shows that analogies are you know much deeper uh, than that. They go, they go much beyond didactic devices. So um, you know in some cases there are. Important discoveries uh, in in and by themselves that holds both in science and engineering. So in science, for example, I think the the analogy that atoms behave like strings that are vibrate did a lot to explain atomic properties during the early days of um, of quantum quantum theory, quantum physics. In engineering, you know, we know that there is you know, many many if you will analogical discoveries. Um, so for example, the the invention of Velcro uh, took place when a Swiss inventor, I forgot the name right now, took walks uh, with his uh, dog in the woods and and found that uh, the, the burrs of some you know plants got attached to the dog's fur. And, and he he thought, well, maybe this could be used uh, technologically, right? Um, so there's many examples like that. Then in literature, you know, the, the analog of an analogy is the metaphor. Uh, it's a sort of a very compact analogy. And there is a lot of psychological and psycholinguistic work that, that suggests that, you know, our minds are fundamentally built to think in metaphors and that metaphor is not just something superficial uh, to our minds it's just really foundational Uh, there's really really excellent work uh, in that area that you know i'm not an expert on at all i've just sort of read this all this material in connection to the topics of the book and um, the way people who study these mental structures also often called conceptual spaces think about it is that you know there's some latent um, connections in our brain that um, we have this latent ability to map relationships in one domain uh, of life, let's say the vibration of strings, to another domain, Um, certain objects in physics, for example. And it is this um, ability, this latent ability, that leads to discoveries through analogies. And, And that's really all there is to it, right? Our ability to discover such hidden relationships between objects uh, is a fundamental ability of our brain that facilitates discovery.
2: Yeah, no, that's super beautiful. You know, when I read this chapter, I think I came into it with a mindset that metaphors and analogies obviously are important and, and they can lead to discovery. But I didn't quite grasp how central they are to the way we think and the way we speak. And that was a real revelation to me. And, I, and let me just bring up another sort of topic that you cover in this chapter. And that's this idea that we use metaphors all the time and that many of them map onto sort of archetypal underlying metaphors. Um, So you give this interesting example of mapping language onto water, right? So we say things like, um, you know, scalding insults, uh, words flowed from a pen, somebody is showered with praise, and that there's this sort of underlying mapping of language and water somehow in our brains. And um, there's a similar sort of archetypal mapping of time and space which is super interesting. And, and so the way I, to maybe to link this back to the idea of Sleeping Beauties, is it, is it your idea that these sort of archetypes are providing this underlying structure that allow us to understand really complex information in the world and, and to make linkages that we wouldn't otherwise make when we're confronted with new information?
1: Yeah, I think that's correct. And, and you know, before I say anything you know, further, you know, the, the people who have really you know, made the best case for this are you know, Stephen Pinker, you who know, has, I think, uh, has popularized this, um, our metaphorical way of, of thinking as, um, in, in some you know, really fantastic books. And George Lakoff, um, a linguist, a psycholinguist, who I think first uh, made the wider world aware of how important metaphor is. And the way I think about it, and this is again, you know, taken from the literature largely. Is that this ability is sort of a fortuitous byproduct of how our brains process information and um, how our brains are able to map existing relationships on new relationships, right? So um, there is a very interesting, you know, experiment that was done, a psychology experiment uh, that was published in Science magazine a few years ago, where people were shown images of a bird on a computer screen, and they were told that they could manipulate uh, two aspects of the morphology of that bird. It was a cartoon bird, really. Uh, that is the, the length of the neck and the length of the legs with two independent knobs. And they basically were trained to, you know, to, to use these knobs to create birds with all kinds of morphologies, right? Then uh, the people who did this experiment studied uh, which kind of neural circuits were being activated while the volunteers did this and it turns out that the, the circuits that were activated are responsible for spatial navigation in the real world. The reason why this is interesting is because it tells us that you know, um, our, the brains of these volunteers mapped an abstract relationship, namely neck length and leg length of, of a cartoon bird onto something of a circuitry that is ancient that we use to, um, that, that we use to navigate space, right? Um, There's very few examples like that because this has not been studied extensively, but I think it's very telling. It shows that circuits in our brain can be used for a lot of tasks that they have not necessarily been evolved for. Um, So they have this huge latent potential to to, uh, discover or map new relationships.
0: So in one sense, this sort of conflicts, it seems, with promiscuity, as we talked about before. But maybe that's because I'm sort of putting the sleeping beauty part of these ideas in different places. If in if some enzymes may have evolved because they provide this promiscuity, or at least it's the case that some enzymes are promiscuous and sometimes that can help fitness. For metaphors, we're mostly talking about the reduction of complexity and then the sort of interlinking of somewhat disparate ideas. Are, are these things related or how am I misunderstanding this?
1: So, you know, the way I would think about it is that we have a latent potential of you know circuitry in our brain that's somewhat analogous to the promiscuity of enzymes that is just as these circuits you know can be used for things that uh, they didn't evolve for so can enzymes catalyze uh, reactions that you know they did not evolve for
0: yeah and if you turn it you use the metaphor to understand promiscuity does it mean that somehow promiscuity becomes limited like tractable in the same way that metaphors make complexity tractable is promiscuity somehow limited because the you know the metaphor has evolved to simplify? Is promiscuity actually more simplified than it first seems?
1: Now, now you lost me, and I think the reason you <laughs> lost me is because I'm not quite sure in which sense metaphor simplifies. Well, if you know,
0: I'm I'm thinking simplification in the sense that water flowing from a pen is a way that we come to understand, we come to represent something happening because our brain evolved to understand flowing water. I mean it's something that was seen and so that, that mapping happens. Complex kinds of things come to be understood via metaphors because of their historical u- utility.
1: That I agree with that. I mean I have no problem with that. But you know I think I'm not sure flowing water, you know describing you know language as flowing water or describing heat like flowing water. It has also been done in physics, right? Makes things simpler. I'd rather it reveals an essential relationship between objects in two different
2: domains.
0: Okay, I think I'm using yeah the essentiality thing. Is, I'm, I'm sticking in simple when that's probably not the appropriate thing. It's more the essentiality,
2: yeah. Okay, here's a follow-up. I mean, I, I certainly think of metaphors and analogies as something that's uh, human-specific. It's something we could do. But if we look further abroad taxonomically, do you think other primates and maybe other mammals also use metaphors in their thinking?
1: Wow, that's a good one. Um, I have no idea because if we did a hypothetical experiment, you know, where, where you, the, the, exactly the experiment that I described to you, you know, with the volunteers and the birds changing shape, right. And, and let's assume we could train monkeys to do this. Um, I would suspect we would find the same neurological correlate, uh, that we'd see in humans, right a question, you know, in which sense is this metaphorical, right, you know, typically metaphor is linked to language, right, and, you know, we don't, we know that don't have symbolic communication that's characteristic of the kind of language that we use, right, so, um,
2: I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fun one.
0: Okay, let's do one more fun one and then we'll start to wrap up. But let me ask another question, probably push all of us to, uh, as biologists realms that we don't usually think a lot about. Um, I was just listening to a podcast this morning with David Krakauer talking about intelligence and he was particularly talking about AGR, artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, making the point that I think I should have realized a long time ago that the AGI's that now exist, chat and, and such, are these massive lookup tables, right, with an insane amount of memory and information that no human brain really has. So it's fundamentally a different way of being intelligent than we are. And yet maybe it looks like it can do some of the creative kinds of things that we attribute to to human intelligence. But do we train, have we taught AGI, have we made the attempt to give metaphorical thinking or do we have any evidence of metaphorical thinking in ChatGPT?
1: I really don't know. You know, I think that's um, going very far out of my comfort zone here, right?
0: That's what I promised. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: well, you know, I, I know a little bit about how these models work. You know, I code, you know, very simple versions of, of neural networks, you know, for our own work. Um, I am mostly, you know, stunned by the, the public debate right now that, you know, people are so shocked that, you know, they... Uh, what the engineers call they hallucinate, right? Uh, you know they could actually speak untruths. Where you know if you know how these things work, basically depending on very subtle correlations in word occurrences in billions of documents, right? They make everything up, right? Every single thing is made up. You right? it's a surprise that anything <laughs> is true, right?
2: <laughs> so that's
1: how it works. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, going back to your question, my suspicion is that don't have the underlying you know structure
2: that is needed to produce you know meaningful metaphors okay so so it's like giant correlations among words and they're trying to predict like the next word in a sequence of words and that strikes me as like a very low level of imposing a structure and imposing a, a correlation on you know what's coming next. isn't a metaphor Sort of the same thing, but it's at a more conceptual level. It's not trying to predict relationships among words, but relationships among concepts. And so maybe maybe this is the path to like a more intelligent uh, AI is to actually build in explicitly this capacity to to understand and use metaphors.
1: That's quite possible that you're that you're right, and uh, yes, I agree. It's you know, <laughs> quite nothing... possible that I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And there's nothing you know like a concept. The concept of a concept built into these large language models, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's two readings of it. The first is that, you know, it's all too too low level to actually go anywhere. Or, you know, we are, as so many times in our human history, overestimating our own abilities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, <I> know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, one, one more on this space, Andreas, and then we can move on because I clearly we're outside of our, our wheelhouse here. It's so much of a black box right now. Right. So how do we know that they aren't finding relationships among completely disparate kinds of things? I mean, basically producing metaphors. Is there anything about the architecture of these lookup tables that would prevent them from using something like a metaphor to come up with an answer?
1: It wouldn't. um, But... You know, I think this is actually a research question. You know, there's a lot of people who want interpretable AI. That's what it's called. You know, basically you have a neural network that you know, where you understand what it's doing. And for very good reasons, uh, especially if you apply AI in the legal domain or the medical domain, you know, you, you'd like to know whether, you know, this machine tells you you got cancer, right? And, and I think this, you know, the question that you raised there is a question right for researchers who are really into finding interpretations or building networks that are actually interpretable.
0: Okay, great. So to, to make a bit of a practical turn, um, first, uh, metaphorical thinking, I mean, we've been arguing is, is quite powerful and it's definitely powerful in the sciences. Is there a way that we can become better metaphorical thinkers? Is there, you know, do you, do you encourage or coach your graduate students to think more metaphorically and how so if you do?
1: Um, the short answer is that no, we don't talk about that very much because frankly, for the majority of them, you know, um, I'll be happy if they can write a straight sentence uh, <laughs> that is you know, declarative and uh, where you don't get lost in all the verbiage. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, the, the, the question goes very much into the direction of what makes a mind you know, creative and can you promote that in some way? And, you know, psychologists might have an answer to that. I don't. Um, it is related to something that's called divergence thinking. That is basically you know when you you know ask a person to come up with associations to a particular word right and there are some people who come up with you know only those associations that everybody else comes up with and then there's others who come up with more unusual um, uh, associations and there's yet others who come up with very bizarre associations and you know there's the sort of the line between madness and creativity, right? Um, and in fact, you know, this, the, the, the earliest word association tests were actually not tests for creative thinking, but for madness.
0: I'd like to take one of those tests. I might might end up in uh, a... We already know that you're mad, Marty. Yes, well, that's what I'm saying. So uh, another kind of applied question scaling out to the sort of ecological ramifications of, of sleep, the whole idea of sleeping beauty and its many different forms that we've talked about. Um, climate is changing dramatically. The humans are changing the planet in many, many different ways. How do you feel about the sort of impacts on life on Earth, given what you know, what you've come to know about Sleeping Beauties? I mean, is there less to worry about with anthropogenic change than maybe the, the conventional wisdom has?
1: You know, I don't I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, we should be just as worried as we've been for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. However, I think we're, you know, we don't necessarily give life enough credit in its ability to come up with new solutions that uh, it faces, and in fact, some of these solutions may already be hidden in there somewhere, right? Um, we we know though that you know there's limits to what evolution can achieve. So you know, something that everybody is talking about is evolutionary rescue, right? And there's important questions there. You know how often that is going to be possible? Uh, climate change, you know, is essentially something that happens very slowly, but it's also associated with extreme climate climate events that can drive populations to extinction. And you know, can some of these um, latent properties that you know, people have discovered help populations um, in this evolutionary rescue? And I think that'd be a really interesting uh, research question to ask. The only thing I can say is that whatever latent properties they have, there's going to be hard limits on evolutionary rescue. So for example, uh, um, a former postdoc in my lab, um, did a really neat evolution experiment where she took an Antarctic bacterium that is adapted to very cold temperatures and basically tried to evolve it to survive at high temperatures. Uh, so I think the optimal growth temperature of that bacterium was somewhere around 10 degrees Celsius. And you know she got it to 30 uh, degrees, uh, but there was just no way it would go beyond 30. You know, 31, everybody was dead and um, she tried this in multiple replicate population It just never worked right so we don't quite know what the reason is and we we have some hypotheses about what might be going on it has to do probably with the fact that the proteins become really unstable at these higher temperatures and this bacterium does not have certain variants of a uh, of uh, chaperones that protect uh, the proteum against this instability, and if you don't have those variants, you know you're screwed. You cannot evolve, adapt beyond a certain temperature. So there's going to be limits, um, but it I think it'd be very interesting to find out what role any kind of latent adaptations might play in shaping those limits or mitigating uh, the the hardness of these limits.
2: Yeah, yeah. Seems like you could imagine that there's a lot of sort of latent capacity for rapid microevolution, but that at some point you hit the limits and you need something else. You need, you need horizontal gene transfer or something more major to happen in order to provide the variation that allows you to surpass the limits, right? Yeah.
1: Or you need a, a lot more time. Right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. It's a long PhD or long postdoc.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, the one million year long postdoc, yes. <laughs> um, and that's, I think, one of the big limitations you know, of laboratory evolution experiments That, um, you know, we basically impose selection pressures on organisms that are so much higher than what they might often experience in the wild, right? And on such compressed timescales that uh, challenges that they might meet in the wild, they're just not going to meet in the lab.
2: So here's another uh, climate-related question, and that has to do with with plastics. You know, I feel like I've just read so much in the last few years about plastic contamination and microplastics everywhere. Do bacterial communities altogether have a lot of latent capacity for for metabolizing plastics? And is there hope for much more rapid degradation of plastic in the future decades?
1: Funny that you mentioned that. I just got a request from somebody who wants to do a postdoc with me. And um, it's a person who is a, a marine ecologist. And um, she actually studied plastic samples from the, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, huh. uh, took them to the lab, and uh, observed microbial colonization and how fast that you know, occurred on these plastics. And it turns out, yes, you know, there's microbes that grow on these plastics. And, you know, one thing that she want, would want to pursue is actually to find out whether, A, you can evolve the microbes in the laboratory um, to digest these plastics faster, and whether microbes that uh, have evolved to digest one kind of plastic can perhaps also digest a dozen others. Something similar to, you know, what we've observed with antibiotics experiment. Yeah, yeah.
2: Sleeping beauties in the plastics world.
1: Exactly, where, where sleeping beauties exist there as well.
0: Wow, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So one one more applied question um, of a sort, in terms of how humans are modifying the planet and the latent plasticities that, or the latent traits that that may exist. What about the species that seem to be problematic for us? I mean, is there any reason to expect that in some lineages there are, there's more? Latent innovation, and I'm thinking in particular of introduced species, especially the pests like you know Phragmites and many other things that we spend billions of dollars trying to control.
1: Well, you know, surely it cuts both ways, right? You know, the the things that can benefit us can also harm us. You know, and and we you know yes, invasive species are a potential example. Antibiotic resistance bacteria, you know, are another example. You know, so that um, we haven't discussed this explicitly, but uh, there are these interesting and beautiful studies on uh, samples of bacteria that have never been in contact with human civilization that may have been um, living in isolation for millions of years in subterranean caves, and you study them and you find, you know, some of these are resistant against eight antibiotics, and some of them at clinical concentrations, and even including antibiotics that are synthetic, that is man-made, do not occur in nature, right? So there's a latent potential there that does not act in our favor.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, Andreas, this has been a, a super fun conversation. Um, we think this might be a good place to start wrapping up. And uh, one, one question we always ask for our guests is whether there's anything we didn't cover, any points you'd like to make here at the very end that we didn't already ask you explicitly, or you know, any, any major point from the book that we, didn't, that we didn't cover that you'd like to communicate.
1: Yeah, perhaps there's one thing you know, that we really didn't touch upon, and that's sort of the, the human dimension of this all, you know, when it comes to human creativity. And um, the frustrations that human creators often have. So, I'm, part of the impetus for me writing this book was actually not the biology side that we discussed today, but it's actually the human side. Um, and in fact, there was an earlier version of this book, uh, earlier draft that had two thirds examples from Sleeping Beauties in human technology and and, and culture, um, and maybe only one third in biology. And the, so, one of the one of the motivations for me writing this book was that you know I know a lot of Creative types, you know, um, artists, musicians, and some amateur musician myself, um, some painters, you know, writers, and although they mostly love what they're doing, they're often extremely frustrated with their lack of success. Right, even successful creators, you know, they have some real hits, but you know, a lot of other creative products they produce are duds. Right, um, and I think there isn't a productive science scientist out there who you know, had a paper at some point where they thought this is going to rock the world, and then nobody even reads it or cites it, right? Um, the, the point here is that, you know, I realized when I, you know, talked to these people on the one hand and read all this literature about sleeping beauties in, you know, dormant innovations in technology, um, artworks that have been ignored for hundreds of years, and then, of course, all the biological examples we discussed, that, you know, it's not actually worth always doubting yourself about whether what you're doing, you know, is good or not, you know, as long as you enjoy creating, because you have no control over the success of your creation, a lot of the times in the vast majority of the times, it's going to be determined by some, something in the world, some, you know, coincidence, uh, perhaps some, the right environment in which you're, you know, novel or whatever needs to be born into, um, to determine its success. And I think that's sort of for human creators, um, perhaps the most important lesson uh, from to draw from the book.
2: Yeah. And our creations may not find the right context until far after our deaths, right?
1: Yeah, or never. I know. Or
2: never. Yeah.
1: <laughs> or never. <laughs> as, as long as you're fun creating them, you're gonna be fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Good. Well, hey, Andreas, thank you so much. This has really been a lot of fun. Um, I wish you the, the best success with the book, and uh, hopefully we can catch up again on the uh, when the next one comes out.
1: Fantastic. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a real riot here, you know, to talk to you guys. Uh, it was really good. Excellent. Yeah.
2: Greatly.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback.
2: Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode.
0: Thanks to interns Dana De La Cruz and Kyle Smith for helping produce the show. Kidding Shamaria produces the fantastic cover art.
2: Thanks also to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support.
0: Music on the episode is from Potting to Bear and Tieran Costello.